Good morning, good morning. How are we doing? Good. We need to warm up our vocals. How are we doing? Online, maybe you're louder. How are you doing? Maybe just in the chat. <laughs> Amazing. So um, the title of my talk today is called The Comeback. So when I was a kid, I used to be really competitive and not in a good way. I literally used to make other children cry. And I'll be quite proud of it. And my teacher in year four, she used to have something called the merit board. And my full name is Adewoleg Badje. And my, my first name starts with A, so I was in alphabetical order. I was the first person on the board. And I was really um, competitive, and there was various ways that you could get um, golden stars for your performance. Like, if you perhaps, you know, answered a maths question correctly or the quickest, you get a gold star next to your name. If you did an act of service to another student, you'll get a gold star. If you were on time, you get a gold star. So I had been planning to get my various gold stars, and I was winning. And I was so proud of it. And at the end of every term, the winner, the person who has the most gold stars, would get a whole box of chocolates. And I really love chocolate, and I was really excited. But then on the penultimate day, the penultimate day of term, the second to last day of term, there was this guy called Daniel that I didn't really like. But Daniel, he did this incredible act, and he got two gold stars, so he surpassed me by one gold star. And I was angry, and I remember just calculating, thinking, I don't have enough time in, in this day to get another gold star and to be in first place. I need to do something. Kuali, think quick on your feet. What can you do? And then the time came, if you're American, it's called recess, if you're from the UK, it's just called break time. But the break time came and all the kids went out the classrooms and started, you know, playing around on the field and the teachers went to their staff lounge. I have no idea what they do in there, but they went to their staff lounge. And I was left alone. <laughs> I was left alone in the classroom and I knew exactly where my teacher put the golden stars. Yes. Don't judge me, okay? <laughs> this is church. This should be a safe place to confess my sins. <laughs> okay. Hallelujah. <laughs> but I knew exactly where she put the golden stars, and I knew her, her. She put the golden stars in her drawer. And while everyone was outside the classroom, I went into her drawer, and I brought it out. I brought out I bought out a packet of golden stars. And because, you know, my parents taught me to be the head and not the tail. <laughs> um, not only did I just put, like, you know, two more golden stars to just be one star in front of Daniel, I wanted to crush my competition, and I put six golden stars next to my name. <laughs> And then the following day came, the last day of term. I was eager, I was eager, I was excited. I was like, this is the time I'll be recognized for all of my efforts. And I woke up early, you know, my uniform was nicely ironed and pressed. And I was like, yes, yes, today is my day. I will be announced the winner of the merits. And I entered the classroom and I'd literally, I had been anticipating this all day. And then it finally came to announce who had won, who has the most amount of merits and golden stars. And the time came and my teacher literally said, Adewole. And I rose up from my seat and she said in front of my whole class, Adewole, you are a cheater. <laughs> and I was like, and she literally said, Adewole put 
um, golden stars next to his name. He went into my drawer, put golden stars next to his name. And she said in front of my whole class, guys, now this is not how to win. And honestly, guys, I was so ashamed. And it was the first time in my life, in year four, that I had felt <laughs> such shame. And I literally felt like I had failed myself. I felt like I had failed my teachers and I had failed my parents because they found out afterwards. <laughs> Love you, mum and dad. <laughs> but I'm sure many of us know what it's like to fail someone, perhaps a loved one, perhaps a friend, perhaps a colleague, or even God himself. And you know, we see on various um, news outlets, tabloids, Instagram, Twitter, we see the stories of people who have failed quite publicly. And we don't always get to hear their comeback story. And I thought it would be great for us in just short time to take a look at Peter and to see how Peter fails, but also review his comeback story and what does it also mean for us. So before we dive in, I just want to do a quick character breakdown of Peter. So Peter was a fisherman. He was a man of little education. He was greatly erratic, courageous, and he was spontaneous. And he was first recruited by Jesus after he had gone out into the waters to catch some fish. But he was unsuccessful and, and he didn't catch anything that day. But then a random man appears to him and says to push his boat back into the water and, and to push his boat back into the water and to cast his net again. And Peter was reluctant, but he was like, fine, I'll do it. And miraculously, he gets the catch of his whole career. His net is filled with fish. And from then on, G um, Peter is ride or die for Jesus. So I nicknamed Peter, ride or die Peter. He's literally like, Jesus, I am ready to go where you go. I'm ready to go hard for you. I am ready to die for you. And in Luke chapter 22, which is going to be our reference text for today, we have a case where Jesus is having his last meal with his disciples before he undergoes his spiritual, the physical, and the emotional turmoil of the cross. And in his last meal, he leaves them in something called the communion. And he encourages them that after he is gone to drink wine and to, um, to drink wine to represent his blood poured out as a sacrifice for our sins and to break bread to represent the body broken for us in remembrance of him. And after this great ceremonial act, his disciples are busy arguing among themselves who is going to be the greatest among them, especially when Jesus leaves. And they're arguing among themselves, and Jesus gives them a corporate message. He gives them a message as a group, speaking to them on servant leadership. And he says to them, the greatest servant, the greatest leader is the greatest servant. So he gives him that corporate message. And then after that message, he now turns to Peter to give him a personal message. And it's this. Let's turn to Luke chapter 22, verse 31. This personal message is this. Simon, who is Peter? He says, Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift each of you like wheat. I'll read that one more time. Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift each of you like wheat. So let's break this down. Jesus is saying that Satan has asked to sift you 
like wheat. And we know what it means to sift something. It means to remove the, the bad parts from the good parts, to break down the lumpy parts from the refined, to break down um, lumpy parts so it is refined into particles. But in this case, um, Jesus is saying, Satan has asked to sift all of you, including the disciples as well, as wheat. In other words, Satan has asked to completely destroy you, to completely derail you, to throw you off, to shake you, and to break you down completely. And I think this is quite intense, because just imagine you're at a dinner party with Jesus, and Jesus, you know, gives a great speech, and then he turns to you and says, oh, I have seen what Satan has planned for you. And what Satan has planned for you, he plans to completely destroy you. If I was Peter, I'd be like, okay, thank you, Jesus, for telling me. And what did you, tell, what did you say to him? You know, did you tell him, not on my watch? <laughs> or did you tell him, get thee behind me, Satan? Because you know, King James Version is very powerful. Get thee behind me, Satan. Did you tell him those words? And imagine after that, Jesus, Jesus just saying, no, I didn't say anything. I just decided to pray for you. If I was Peter, I'd be quite speechless. But literally, this is what happens. In verse 32, Jesus says, but I have pleaded for you, for you in prayer. Simon, that your faith should not fail. But I have pleaded in prayer for you, Simon, that your faith should not fail. So when you have repented and turned to me again, strengthen your brothers. So on top of saying, I will pray for you, Jesus is indirectly saying that you are going to go through a severe time of testing and you will fail. You are going to go through a severe time of testing and you will fail. But when you do, repent, turn to me and strengthen those around you, not to stumble. And I think this is fascinating. You will fail, but when you do, acknowledge your wrong, strengthen, acknowledge your wrong, surrender to me, and carry on with the mission I have given you. So there's two things here that we can see that's indicated that God does through our failures. First of all, he refines our character and our faith. And the second thing is that he gives us the strength, the wisdom, and the compassion to help other people so they won't make the same mistake or stumble like we have. But Peter, hence why I call him ride or die Peter, he says nobly and quite ignorantly, he says these words in verse 33. He says, Lord, I am ready to go to prison. I'm ready to go to prison with you and even die with you. And I love how Jesus replies. He says, Peter, come, let me tell you something. Before the rooster crows tomorrow morning, you will deny me three times. You will deny that you even know me. You will deny three times that you even know me. And I think this is a crazy statement. How are you telling the person who's supposed to be ride or die for you that you are going to deny me three times? And I'm sure many of us know what happens next, but just in case, let's quickly review it. In Luke chapter 22, verse 54, it says these words. So they had arrested him, they had arrested Jesus, and they led him to the high priest's home. And Peter followed at a distance. The guards lit a fire in the middle of the courtyard and sat around it. And Peter joined them there. 
A servant girl noticed him in the firelight and began staring at him. Um, at him. Finally, she said, this man was one of Jesus' followers. But Peter denied it. Women, he said, I don't even know him. After a while, someone else looked at him and said, you must be one of them. No, man, I'm not, Peter retorted. Verse 59, about an hour later, someone else insisted this must be one of them because he is a Galilean too. But Peter said, man, I don't know what you are talking about. And immediately, while he was speaking, the, the rooster crowed. At that moment, the Lord turned and looked at Peter. Suddenly, the Lord's words flashed through Peter's mind. Before the rooster crows tomorrow morning, you will deny three times that you even know me. And Peter left the courtyard, weeping bitterly. So let's just revisit what happened here. So when Jesus is arrested, ride or die, Peter follows him at a distance. And he ends up in this random courtyard, and they have taken his Lord and Savior, Jesus, and his friend into the house of the high priest to be interrogated. And Peter takes a seat in, in, in the courtyard and three people, while he's basically there, come to him and say, aren't you one of Jesus's boys? You were with him. Y'all hang out. You're even from the same cultural group. Come on. Surely you're one of his boys. But Peter says, I have no idea who this guy is, essentially. So Peter the guy that you were ready to ride or die for, the guy that you were ready to go to prison for, to die for, now you don't know him. And I'm from South London, and back in the day, if someone did this, we will call them fake. So Peter went from ride or die Peter to fake Peter. Just imagine Jesus at his most vulnerable stage. He's tied up, he's humiliated. He's surrounded by enemies, people insulting him, and his closest friend in the vicinity acts like He doesn't know him. Imagine if that was you at the scariest moment of your life, the most humiliating moment of your life, just like me in year four. Your only friend nearby acts like they don't know you, disregards you. And it's really easy, especially revisiting this, to view view Peter as, as as a snake or as someone who's fake or disloyal. But how many times have we denied Jesus? Perhaps through our words, perhaps through our actions, maybe even explicitly, for example, in a work or social context where we've subtly subtly denied our faith because of embarrassment. Or maybe in other situations, we felt God convict us to do something, but we allow our fears to immobilize us. Or maybe the opposite, there's been times where we feel God convict us not to do something, but we do it anyway. And I've definitely fallen prey to this. But what do we do when our affiliation to Jesus is too costly, perhaps costing us our comfort, costing us our pleasure, and maybe even costing us our reputation? We've all denied Jesus in some type of way. In some type of way, we have all failed And perhaps like Peter, you have done the same thing consistently. And we see in this particular time, if we just read um, some more chapters um, um, afterwards, we see that Peter is actually not the only figure in this time that failed Jesus, that denied Jesus. There's another figure that goes by the name of Judas. 
And Judas was actually the person that rats out Jesus for money, rats out his whereabouts to the chief priest so they could arrest Judas. And sometimes we don't often deal with our failures in the most healthiest of ways. We don't deal with them in healthy ways. And I feel like Peter and Judas are both examples of that. For example, Judas, unfortunately, he's an, he's an extreme example of someone whose failure was not properly addressed. It led to such a deep sense of rejection. It led, he internalized such a deep sense of rejection that he basically felt like he didn't deserve to live anymore. It led to a downward spiral. And Peter, Peter himself was so dejected, he felt so ashamed that he denied his friend, his Lord and Savior, Jesus, that he basically retreated back into old habits before meeting Jesus. And this tends to happen, especially when we have failed, especially when we have sinned. We feel this sense of shame and we feel this sense of anger towards ourselves that we just retreat back to old patterns and old lifestyles that we had before meeting Jesus. So what does Jesus do? So Jesus, after he resurrects, after his resurrection, he goes to find Peter. So Peter is not defined by his failure. He goes to be reconciled with him. And he goes to meet him exactly where he first met him, when they first met, fishing. And in John chapter 21, verse 15, we have an interaction just after Peter, just after Jesus finds Peter fishing, and there's an interaction between them. And Jesus says to Peter, Simon Peter, Simon son of John, do you love me more than these? And when Jesus says more than these, he was referring to the other disciples because Peter, once again, was known for being so zealous that he literally said, even if I fall away on account of you, even if all fall away on account of you, I never will. So Jesus basically says in this first question, do you love me then? Do you love me more than the other disciples? And Peter responds and he says, Yes, Lord, he said, you know that I love you. So Jesus said, Feed my lambs, or in other translations, feed my sheep. Again in verse 16, Jesus asks us another question Simon, son of John, do you love me? He answered, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And Jesus said, Take care of my sheep. And I just want to make a note here that the word love that Jesus has used in both these two questions is the word agape. And agape means unselfish, overwhelming, sacrificial, or given type of love, the love that God gives himself. And Peter responds with, yes, I do love you, but he responds with a different type of love. He responds with the word Filio, a filio type of love, which is a strong brotherly friendship type of love. And if you realize that Peter, ride or die Peter, now is not overestimating his love for Jesus. Humbly, he's now saying that I love you with a strong brotherly friendship type of love. I don't know if I can say I love you with an agape type of love. He's no longer haughty or proud about his devotion. He says that I love you 
with a strong friendship, brotherly type of love. In other words, my love and my devotion is not perfect. And in verse 17, the third time, Jesus says to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him the third time, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. And Jesus said, feed my sheep. For Peter, Jesus asked him three times was a painful reminder that I, Peter, have denied Jesus three times. But in Jesus' third question, he doesn't use the word agape, but he actually uses the word filio, a brotherly type of love. He says, Peter, do you love me with a brotherly type of love? And Peter responds, Lord, you know all things. You know all things. You know that I love you. And what I find so interesting is that Jesus still says, feed my sheep. Jesus doesn't say, how dare you, Peter? How dare you not love me with an agape love? Level up. Come on, I need more. (laughs) And I think the point is, because it's humanly impossible, I feel like Jesus was trying to point that out. God gives that type of love. But still, he says, feed my sheep. In other words, I still want to use you, even though your love It's not perfect. I still want to use you despite your imperfections and despite your failures. And this interaction between Peter and Jesus right here puts Peter back on track for the rest of his life. And Peter goes on to be one of the greatest apostles throughout all of history. Even at Pentecost, just some time after, he preaches such a powerful message about the good news of Jesus Christ that scripture says in Acts 2 that 3,000 people were added to the church that day. And, and, And literally, he becomes the rock that Jesus builds his church upon. His failure was not the end. And I think the story of Peter should provide some comfort for us because it shows us that there is hope after our failures. There is hope after our sins because we have a God that wants to restore us. We have a God that does not just leave us where we are, that does not just leave us defined by our failures. Your failure does not need to be the end of you. Your sin does not need to be the end of you. And just like the psalmist says in Psalms 38, verse 18, it says, The Lord is close to all whose hearts are crushed by pain, and he's always ready to restore the repentant one. I'll read that again. The Lord is close to to all whose hearts are crushed by pain, and he's always ready to restore the repentant one. The Lord is ready to restore you. So if you have failed, or if you fail, let's not just retreat back into our old habits before knowing Jesus or allow ourselves to go into a downward spiral. But let's do the very thing that Jesus told Peter to do after his failure, which was this, to repent, to turn to God, and to strengthen others. And I just want to quickly break this down. The first one, to repent. To repent of your sin. 
Sometimes when we sin and when we have failed, as Brian L. Harbour says, sometimes we do three things. The first thing we might do is that we might rationalize it. We might try to give some justification for our actions and we try to perhaps undermine it. Or maybe the second thing we do is that we deny it. We, we, we lie about it and we basically act like I did not do that thing at all. I have no idea what y'all, y'all are talking about. <laughs> that ain't me, <laughs> okay? We might do that. Or the third thing is that we might run away from it. We try to ignore it. We try to suppress the feeling. But years later, it's still eaten up at us. But scripture says in 1 John chapter 1, verse 9, it says, but if we confess our sins to him, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all wickedness. And perhaps right here, you are thinking, what gives me the right to move on from my past? What gives me the right to move on for my sin or even become a Christian because I have done so much wrong. I can tell you right now that Jesus' sacrifice is enough and gives you the right to move on. Because as I close with Colossians chapter 2 verse 13, it says, you were dead because of your sins and because your sinful nature was not yet cut away. Then God made you alive for Christ for he forgave all our sins. He cancelled the record of the charges against us and took it away by nailing it to the cross. Jesus' sacrifice for you cancelled every record of wrong. So you have every right to move on and to make a comeback. So that's my petition to you, to repent, to turn to God, and to strengthen those around you in their spiritual journeys where God has imparted wisdom to you and to teach other people the way of Jesus. Just like Peter, church, there is a life after your failures and you can make a comeback. Amen.